All right, welcome back. Time for Baldry's Beat. Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. Good morning, Keith. Good morning. Okay, I spoke to Aaron O'Toole earlier this morning, and I'll play a clip here for you in a second here. Get your get your take on it. We covered a lot of ground, but, you know, as expected, he kind of criticizing the vaccine rollout mm-hmm. across the country. And if we take a look at what's happening here in British Columbia, did you detect some, like, frustration yesterday with from Dix, from Bonnie Henry, as the COVID numbers surge in British Columbia, they wish they had more vaccine. Oh, I've, I've detected right? um, frustration from day one from Adrian Dix and Bonnie Henry on the issue of, of uh, lack of supply of vaccinations. We don't, we, we don't make our own vaccines in BC or in Canada. Uh, we depend on foreign co- uh, companies like Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca. And the issue is the vaccines aren't arriving in Canada in sufficient numbers. And then our allotment is not that great. It's 13.6% of everything that comes in. So the concern now is in the next month, we're going to have 100,000 less Pfizer doses on uh, over the next four weeks than we would have normally would have because Pfizer is, we've been getting 163,000 doses a week of Pfizer. That's been very reliable. That's our workhorse uh, uh, vaccine. They've been dependable. That's going to 138,000 for the contracts Canada signed. Still don't understand why that is. Moderna has been totally unreliable. Uh, we expect to get more than 100,000 doses, but they've never lived up to their uh, timeline uh, ever. I mean, we're supposed to get it every second or third Friday. It arrives in, in smaller amounts, and then it arrives the following week in smaller amounts. And then AstraZeneca just sort of appears when it appears. And so yeah. we're supposed to get 138,000 Pfizer this week, more than 100,000 Moderna, and 40,000 AstraZeneca. We're through 1.1 million people getting at least one dose. We have to get to 4.3 million, and that's why there's frustration being expressed, because we're at the mercy of these foreign companies and the federal government. It really is frustrating, because it feels like in the race between the virus and the vaccine, the virus seems to be winning right now as the case numbers go up. And I've had people say to me, and I know people have probably said the same thing to you, why don't they run these vaccination clinics 24 hours a day? Why don't they run them on the weekends? And it's because, well, if they had the vaccine, they probably would maybe consider doing yeah, that. Well, we don't have, we just don't have the doses. Yeah, you know, we're, we're, we're vaccinating. I mean, we keep some back as a reserve for, for outbreaks and emergency situations, but not a lot. I mean, and again, we're trying to get the vaccines in arms as quickly as possible, but uh, it is frustrating that we're getting less vaccines in the, in the next month than we did last month. Yeah, that's troublesome. Here's Dr. Bonnie Henry uh, speaking about this yesterday yesterday uh, about the vaccine delays. Have a listen. Yes, it makes us all anxious, particularly on Monday afternoons. If uh, if Pfizer doesn't come in as scheduled, um, then we just need to to postpone clinics. Yeah, postpone clinics. Well, I remember talking to, uh, I think, two or three weeks ago, Mondays ago, talking to Health Minister Adrian Dix in the afternoon, him expressing real concerns. It was Monday at like at one o'clock. We're running out of Pfizer. There's probably going to have to be cancellations the next day or at least Wednesday because we were running out of vaccines. Suddenly, 4 o'clock, Pfizer arrives, 163,000 doses, and that basically saved the week. We were able to get – we've been doing 30,000, 40,000 um, vaccinations a day. But, again, it's it's literally – you hit the wall because no vaccines on the horizon. Then then suddenly it appears. So it's really uh, almost impossible to do long-term planning uh, because the vaccines just are, are hit and miss in terms of their arrival. Okay, another big number yesterday of confirmed cases. We're running at, like, what, 1,000 a day, roughly? Almost 1,100 a day, although it went yeah. down slightly yesterday yesterday over a seven-day average because it actually was, was 1,200 in the first day, then a little more than 1,000, and then a little less than 1,000 on Sunday to Monday. But we'll see what it is today. Uh, you always look at seven-day averages. We're around 1,000, 1,100, between 1,000 and 1,100. I no reason to assume that the number uh, is not going to be as big today. The real concerning numbers yesterday, though, 
were the hospitalizations, which suddenly went up 36, biggest increase in one day ever, mm. uh, to 368, and then uh, 19 more ICU cases to a record 121. We've never been, uh, since April, we've gone up 53% of our cases in the ICUs, and that's prompted uh, Health Minister Adrian Dix to make some changes. Okay, speaking of that, here's Health Minister Adrian Dix yesterday announcing uh, the move of critical care nurses because of these ICU numbers. Here he is. The reasonable growth in cases is having a real impact on healthcare workers and for the first time to beginning to impact our effort to ensure individuals receive needed scheduled surgeries since we relaunched the surgical renewal plan in May. In short, it is critical to keep our hospitals open and safe and open to everyone to be able to come in and to do that, we all need to ensure that we're following public health guidance. Yeah, so he's had. To, we've had to move eight critical care nurses into ICUs in in uh, Royal Columbian, Surrey Memorial, and Abbotsford General, uh, and that affects what's called uh, two slates of surgery surgical schedules, uh, and a slate is seven and a half hours worth of operating time. And so I talked to Minister Dix at length about this yesterday. That's about a hundred surgeries have had to be rescheduled as a result of this move. And and the the issue is we we've got enough beds right now. We're not getting overwhelmed in terms of numbers in beds. We've got enough incubators. There's only twenty percent take up on incubators right now. And that's not the issue. The issue is human resources and staff who are getting burned out and critical care in particular. What anybody familiar with an ICU unit, this isn't a seven hour operation. This is a twenty four seven operation where it's one one-to-one care in many cases, and they need more staff, and that's why the, the surgeries were, were rescheduled in those three These hospitals. are elective surgeries that are being canceled? Yes, yes, yeah. not, not, not urgent care, but uh, it would primarily a lot of joint replacement surgeries and cataracts are what we're talking about here. Okay, uh, we take a look at uh, Canada's reputation around the world here with its management of, of the vaccine rollout. British Columbia got some negative press attention in the United Kingdom after the Whistler mm-hmm. outbreak uh, the other day. And I don't know, I, I think maybe as Canadians, we worry too much about what other people think about us. But, we do. S- but still, <laughs> but still, when you see a story like the one that CNN uh, did yesterday, uh, pointing a finger just how bad things are in Canada. It's kind of jarring. So let's have a little listen to this. This is uh, CNN reporter uh, Paula Newton here. ICUs filled to capacity and beyond, and it's clear, doctors say, Canada's vaccine shortage is now their problem. We went through a period where we were rapidly trying to immunize our healthcare workers, both first and second doses, to all of a sudden, we're not getting the supply that we thought we would. We have nothing. And it went down to, I remember, weeks where there was no vaccine. Vaccines change the game of this pandemic. We used to be way ahead of the Americans. We used to look at them and say, wow, look how much better we're doing. Now they're ahead of us. Well, to a point, keep in mind, the, the, the number of cases in the United States continues to increase significantly. So they're not out of the woods by any means. Where they are ahead of Canada, though, clearly is on the vaccination rollout because they they manufacture their own uh, vaccine. They got this huge plant in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Uh, they're, they're, you know, they supply their own vaccine. They're not at the mercy of international companies. I mean, they do uh, have contracts with, with uh, international companies, but by and large, they can take care of themselves. And that's why they've moved ahead of Canada. In fact, it's, it's um, the United States and Israel and Britain, I think, are the top three in terms of yeah. vaccination rates. So, but again, it's not the case where the United States is suddenly in a place to safety. The number of COVID cases continues to escalate down there, and some states and counties are in very, very serious trouble with their own ICU cases. Okay, it was interesting to speak to Aaron O'Toole earlier on the show. He was on at 9.30, and it was I found it interesting to get his reaction to Trudeau 
putting him, uh, going after him in Trudeau's keynote speech at the Liberal Policy Convention on the weekend, where he just basically ripped O'Toole a new one in this uh, speech. It sounded like a campaign-style speech, everyone mm-hmm. always calls it. So I asked O'Toole, you know, are you still kind of bracing for a potential election call here? And here's what he told me. Part of my, my role as leader is to make sure the party uh, has a plan, has great candidates, has some policy. We're bringing some great policy out over the next couple of weeks and months, and we're going to be ready. I don't think it's a time because we have to get people through COVID first. But part of my job as opposition leader is Mr. Trudeau controls the, the timeline. I have to be ready. Okay, I think if Trudeau had, had his way, we would be on the downside of this pandemic and he'd be gearing up for an election right now. Except the pandemic is in control of things right now. We're not in control of the pandemic. And that's a problem for Trudeau, I think, uh, on a number of fronts. One is the the frustration with the vaccination rollout, the the lack of vaccines arriving on a timely basis. The surge in COVID numbers, particularly in Ontario and ICU cases, in particular in Ontario and vote-rich, riding-rich Ontario and Quebec. That's problematic for, for Mr. Trudeau. And Aaron O'Toole, you know, we heard your interview with him. Like, um, I think he mentioned he was in the military like three or four times. Yes, he I does think, like to remind people yeah, of that. I, I think that's going to be a stock and a parcel of his uh, campaign stump speech. But, um, you know, he sounded, uh, you know, reasonable. I think he's going to, but again, the frustration he's going to have is you can't campaign in, in the traditional sense. Yeah. And this is, the, this is the frustration for all politicians. We saw it in BC in the, in the fall election. It was a virtual campaign. It's tough to get energy going out there in the electorate. It's tough to, and, and O'Toole needs energy because he wants to have change. Yeah. And it takes energy to, to get voters to change. And it's tough to, to do that in a pandemic that doesn't allow you to campaign. All right, welcome back. Keith Baldry, Baldry's Beat, your calls to him. Let's go right to your phone calls here. Sean in North Van. Hey, Sean. Morning, gentlemen. Um, I think history's going to show, and it already shows now, that the liberal legacy on COVID-19 can be summed up in two words. And those two words are preventable deaths. Um, A year ago, Trudeau and his liberals were sitting in a circle singing Kumbaya and trying to figure out what type of either unicorn or rainbow to put in people's backyards when uh, a worldwide crisis was happening. So come election day, two words, preventable deaths. Well, we'll see. I mean, thanks for the call. O'Toole made a similar point to me. He said something like, I don't call this the third wave. I call this the Trudeau wave because if they had been faster on the vaccine supply. Well, I mean, his point is that they spent how many months jerking around trying to do a deal with China mm-hmm. to, to get a vaccine, and then China basically reneged on the deal? And his argument is that if they had been putting their efforts earlier into vaccine supply, then we might not be in the position that we're in. Maybe. I'm not sure the public's going to play much of a coulda, shoulda, woulda game uh, come the election, uh, particularly when Canada's not alone. You look at what's going on in Europe. Europe is out of yeah. control when it comes yeah. to COVID-19, with the exception of the UK. Uh, Germany's in a lot of trouble. So is France. The United States, again, for, as I just mentioned, for all their vaccination progress, there's still a lot of chaos in the United States, in particular states. So no one stands alone here in terms of, you know, you, you take New Zealand out of the mix and Vietnam and Taiwan, some of those countries that got a grip on this early on. And it's hard to pick a country but, that shows a lot of success right now. But isn't it embarrassing for Canada as a G7 country, one of the wealthiest and most prosperous countries in the world that were ranked like 45 
or something in the world. I mean, that's just pathetic. Well, again, it's the price you pay for not having your own domestic supply. And again, that's one of the lessons of this pandemic. You have to build your own, particularly going forward. There's going to be more pandemics. The coronaviruses are here to stay, according to scientists, and you have to build up uh, capacity here. And that's one of the critical challenges facing Canada and other countries. Let's go to Chris on the line in Kelowna. Hiya, Chris. Hey, how's it going, guys? Good. Good. Go ahead. Uh, So just curious uh, your thoughts on the staffing uh, issues there for nursing my wife's been an LPN for 10 years uh, eight of which in Alberta the scope's quite different between Alberta and BC she's recently moved back and she's unfortunately having to uh, start from scratch essentially to go get her RN uh, to you know for her own self to get her degree but just kind of curious if you guys know of any sort of bridge programming or your thoughts on the government's approach to maybe taking you mean- these nurses you mean like Sorry? okay, so she's like a licensed practical nurse, but she wants to she wants to do an RN job, a registered nurse job. Is that what she you mean? wants to go back to get her degree for her RN? But having ten years of experience, um, you know, the the only way she can go back and get her RN is essentially starting from scratch and having to go back and, and take first year well, university again. Well, I don't know. I mean, we might get to a spot where they want to try and fast-track training more nurses, Keith, but, you know, maybe we're not at that spot right we, now. We may get to that point. I mean, uh, human resources and healthcare is a, a critical issue, of course, as we're seeing, as we just talked about uh, right now. We've got enough beds. We've got enough ventilators. We don't have enough nurses. Let's go to Mike on the line in Langley. Hey, Mike. We're, the government is handling this so wrong. Like, we got churches shut down, yet we got people wall-to-wall on planes. Last night, I'm biking. I put my lever through my hand, so I had to go in and get stitches, and I'm, like, lying in a bed, and I hear the doctor right beside me talking to this lady, and, she, and he's like, oh, yeah, we're pretty sure you had COVID. Like, how do we have, do the, why don't we have the COVID people separated? We're so worried about it. Like, how do you have, go into emergency and have a COVID people with, like, everyone else? Like, I'm healthy, but if that was my dad mm-hmm. in there for stitches, and he's lying beside someone with COVID, like, it's crazy. Oh, okay, well, were you in the emergency ward? Yeah, I went into emergency to get stitches because it was yeah. Late at so, night. so I don't know. I mean, how do they how do they separate someone out? At emer- you show up with a, an emergency injury. Uh, they supposed to separate you out. If you got COVID, they would move you out of there. I would imagine. You wouldn't necessarily get a COVID test, so I'm not yeah. sure exactly anecdotally what, how much to read into that. Okay, interesting story though. Thanks for sharing it, Sandy and Burnaby. Hi, Sandy. We got a minute here. Okay, just quickly, I'm wondering why uh, I thought you had to have a negative test to get on a plane. That's where the variants came in originally. Why are they not stopping the people coming in who have the variant and they won't uh, seclude at the airport suggested? Thank you for the call. A great story yesterday about an alarming of the number of people who are coming in and refusing to self-isolate. Yeah, that's unbelievable. Because the the fine you pay is something like $3,000, which matches the hotel bill. A day. Bill. A day. Yeah, 3000 a day. So it's uh, there's there's a loophole here where the, the the fine is simply not great enough to capture these people to convince them to, because the hotel bill is going to be so expensive. So more than 100 people just ut- utterly define the federal law, and that's concerning. Imagine the jam you have to have to look a border fi- official in the yeah. eye and say, I'm not going to your yes, damn hotel. I know. It's, uh, you don't want to mess with border officials, but clearly these well, people Well, then they are. just let them go. Yep. And, and that, then that, It's been a flaw all along at the airports. Uh, federal government has jurisdiction here. I know the provinces are frustrated with their inability to enforce this. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. 
Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.